0: Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week is one of our regular episodes where we talk to a prominent contributor for the London Review of Books and I'm delighted to say today we're joined by Jan-Werner Muller who's written for the LRB over the past couple of years about Europe, the fate of democracy, what politics means in Germany and about populism and that's what we're going to talk about today. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany this episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for £12. We're also joined this week by Helen Thompson, Chris Bickerton, who's written widely about populism. Helen, not so much, but she's certainly got views on this subject. We're particularly going to focus on something that Jan wrote in the period between Trump's election and his inauguration. So last December in the LRB, capitalism in one family, which has stood the test of time pretty well, I think, but is also an attempt to apply some of your arguments, particularly from your book, What is Populism to the Trump Phenomenon? and making some comparisons with other authoritarian leaders around the world, other democracies. The core claim, and we'll we'll talk about some of the other things too, but the core claim, and it comes out of your wider work, is that it's a mistake to assume that populism is a kind of election-winning strategy, that you can get the votes by saying that elites have stolen democracy. And it's not a governing strategy, because once you win as a populist, you are then the elite or the establishment, and you can't govern in that spirit. Yeah, and you say you absolutely can govern in that spirit. So just tell us a bit more about how. how do, not how do populists win elections, but how do they govern?
1: They govern exactly in line with their core claim, which is that they and only they represent what they often call the real people or also typically the silent majority. So the essential thing about populism, in my view, is not some vague anti-elitism, It's anti-pluralism. It's saying that we and only we represent the people. All other contenders for power are illegitimate. And that also means when they come to power, when they're in government, that they do not truly recognize the legitimacy of an opposition. And I think we have enough cases in our time now, from, let's say, Turkey to Hungary to Poland, maybe India to some degree, to some degree, alas, the United States as well, where we might even speak of the emergence of something like as perverse as that term might sound, a sort of populist art of governance. Because while all these cases are clearly also, in significant ways, different, there are real family resemblances. You put these figures together and you see a very, very common pattern. When they're criticized, for instance, by independent institutions, be it courts or free media, they will always immediately shoot back by saying, we're elected, we are the only representatives of the people, who are you? You're not elected. So far, relatively obvious. Less obvious is, for instance, the tendency to say that whenever there is protest, this protest, even if it poses no real threat to their power, has to be comprehensively delegitimated in moral and symbolic terms. I think Putin was the first one to adopt this strategy of basically saying, look, what you see out there, aren't really, you know, citizens or bona fide civil society, criticizing the government. No, it can't be true that parts of the people themselves criticize their only authentic representatives. So how do we explain people being out there? Well, obviously, it's all paid for and steered by somebody on the outside. And against that background, it's maybe not entirely innocent that a president says, oh, well, in this case, of course, he doesn't say it, when a president tweets as Trump did in January, when millions of people came out against the so-called Muslim travel ban, that these were supposedly, as he put it, paid-up activists. I think that's a telltale sign of something. Of course, all politicians in the face of protest are going to say, we're right, our policy is correct, we're in line with the Constitution, let's say, they're wrong, perfectly fine in a democracy. But to immediately say, in effect, it's a conspiracy, that's a different thing.
0: I was going to say, it is one of the features that they have in common, which is, people argue about what a conspiracy theorist is. But in a sense, whatever it is, Trump seems to fall somewhere within the definition. But that's a feature that runs across these different kinds of authoritarian governments, populist governments around the world. Foreigners, outsiders have infiltrated the people and turned the people against themselves. That's the idea that connects this.
1: Indeed, and contrary to this sort of complacent liberal assumption that once these people are in power, once the populists are in power, they can't really have an anti-elite stance anymore because supposedly they have become the elite now, one has to say that no populist in government has ever run out of further scapegoats or further quote-unquote shadowy elites who are preventing them from implementing the authentic will of the people. What maybe is, is less obvious and worth pointing out is that a lot of these governments have also learned how to incorporate protest in a very sophisticated way into their own narratives of culture war. I mean, they always search for conflict. They always want confrontation. They want to keep a culture war going, where they basically keep telling their own people, quote-unquote, you are the real people, and here are all these minorities, outsiders, global billionaires, you know, who are a threat to our country, and so on and so forth. So very often they will even... Seemingly make the protest sort of more prominent than it sometimes actually is but always to frame it in such a way They can say look here are these outsiders. We're defeating them Example from Hungary earlier this year You remember that the government seemed to be on the verge of closing Central European University many people came out not just students and professors but pensioners elementary school teachers. It looked very impressive What did the government say in response? Look? the Shorosh network ie you know the liberal network financed by the philanthropist financier george shorosh you know We've dragged them out into the open. We've flushed it's them out. It's more than we thought it was. But good thing they've all come out now and shown themselves. Probably Stephen Bannon sort of said and thought the same thing in January about the millions of people who came out in the US. But look, basically, it's a tiny minority. And here's the enemy, and we show you who the enemy is. And here on our side are the real people, the good people, and so on.
0: So come to Chris and Helen in a second. But one more question on this. You use that interesting phrase, a kind of populist art of governance. But when people look at Trump in particular, I think, What you said absolutely chimes true. I think people can recognise the phenomenon, but it doesn't seem to have been an effective means of getting things done in power. So it absolutely clearly is a device for dividing the nation, lining people up where you want to have them lined up. And whether this is a function of American democracy or a wider phenomenon, getting legislation passed achieving the goals on which you got elected, if that's what governance is about, then it's you know, this is where there's people's scepticism about whether populists can really rule.
1: They can divide, but can they get things done? So the cases I mentioned earlier clearly are all different. So Turkey is not the US, and the institutional setup is different. The forces of resistance, if one may put it that way, are different, as we've now learned this year. At the same time, I believe it's it's a mistake to think that, as some of my colleagues have put it, that he's malevolent, but fortunately he's also completely incompetent. It's not true that nothing is happening. One thing that clearly is happening is that Trump is filling the judiciary with judges very successfully. In fact, the most successful president in terms of filling these positions since Richard Nixon. Now, these are not all populist judges or people who are ideologically committed to Trumpism. In a sense, the good news is that at this moment there is no real Trumpist movement out there. There could be one in the future. And the most prominent Gorsuch is not a... Yes, but it's not a populist, whatever but, else But in it is. terms of is something happening, Yeah, something is happening. And something is happening that in many ways will make the party that, after all, has brought him to power. It wasn't a populist movement that got him into office. It was a so-called established conservative party that did it, will keep them happy. Some of these characters are pretty borderline in terms of these judges. And as long as these things are happening, as long as basically environmental protection is being hollowed out day and night... I think enough people will get the sense, well, actually, there is sort of some governance. It's not entirely in the way that we thought of it, but it might just be enough to keep the Republicans happy. There might be enough incendiary rhetoric to keep the base happy. So I think it's far too early to say that, oh, this is basically already over.
2: One of the things that I was wondering as I was was listening to you talking was the message that seems to be coming out, I think, is that populists, when they come to power, manage their authority in a way that they try to concentrate power in themselves. It's a kind of authoritarianism that emerges and that takes hold of the state that attacks civil society, that delegitimizes opposition movements. Now authoritarianism has probably a maybe a longer history than populism, arguably. Is there anything that really distinguishes the two? Is there a sense in which this populist art of governance or this populist style of governance is more than just a reawakening of authoritarian tendencies that have a long-standing relationship with democratic politics.
1: Not every authoritarian has to make an appeal to the people along the lines of saying the people are basically right and they're virtuous and they know what's the right thing to do and here are we and we are the only ones who are going to implement that will if you think back to the 20th century, there were plenty of what at the time was called bureaucratic authoritarians, technocrats maybe, if you like, who basically said the people are completely irrational. That's why we're taking over. That's why we're doing what's right for the country, of course, and what's ultimately right for the people. But we're not claiming any connection to anything like popular popular agency. This maybe raises one sort of big puzzle for our times, which is that given that all these characters nominally remain committed to democratic principles, they're not saying it's over, you know, we want dictatorship, or let's do consumerist Leninism like in China, you know, because that's clearly the way forward. You would have thought that a particularly successful response would be something like civil disobedience, where if you go back to classical models like Rawls's or Habermas's, basically people say, look, we appeal to principles which everybody on paper is still committed to. And hopefully people are going to see how this government is actually violating these principles. And we're not seeing a lot of that. And it's peculiar also in light of the fact that some of our colleagues in social science think that actually can by now be shown that even if you mobilize relatively small parts of the population so one figure that's often mentioned is 3.5 percent of people continuously then any regime is likely to fall no matter how much violence that regime is prepared to engage in against protest and so on and yet we haven't seen any of that in recent years so one hypothesis, I can't prove this to you, but one hypothesis is that in all these old models of protest and civil disobedience one thing was virtually taken for granted namely that you did this publicly, that you generated publicity, and that you were going to reach enough people to basically listen to these grievances and understand your point of view. And this, I think, can no longer be taken for granted, because all these populist governments have also radically reduced media pluralism. They've usually hijacked the public media directly. They've often used the market to get rid of other newspapers. So in Hungary, it just so happens that the main opposition newspaper is sold to an Austrian investor. Alas, the paper isn't making any money. He had to close it down. It's not the kind of thing you can take to the European Court of Human Rights directly. And yet it has a huge impact, because ultimately, you know, we all love particular Danish fairy tale where it just takes one child to say that the emperor is naked and then everybody says yes of course but the premise even of the fairy tale is that everybody can hear the child and if that's no longer the case if you have highly fragmented public spheres as also is famously or infamously the case in the US I think that whole game changes and I'm not sure we fully understood the implications and can I just to pick up on that as you say this is
0: anti-pluralist yet it's feeding off fragmentation I know fragmentation and pluralism are not the same thing But it's not on the old fashioned authoritarian model, kind of co option of the media, centralization of the media. Putin, never mind Trump, it's about the chaos. I mean, part of it is about the chaos. There is no single source of truth or authority, because it's almost been randomised. And I know that's not pluralism, but it's also not centralised control either. I mean, 21st century populism feeds off the fact that digital technology has just splintered the public sphere. Is that right?
1: I think it has helped. And maybe another paradox of our time is that we, it seems to me at least, we live in a profoundly anti-authoritarian era, but anti-authoritarian doesn't mean progressive. So institutions which had a certain credit in terms of, oh, if they say it, that's probably right, or here's certain boundaries to public discourse, clearly have lost influence. Others in the US, as we've now learned, haven't. So it's still completely okay to have all these military people in the government. It's even okay to have Plenty of Wall Street people in the government, even though you are supposedly the champion of Main Street and the great populist and and so on. But it's a particular kind of professional who I think has gotten delegitimated in certain ways. It mattered that Hillary Clinton was seen as the ultimate professional in politics. So in that sense, yes, it helps these characters who always officially, of course, speak about unification. Even there, if you recall what Trump said On November 9th last year, you know, the first thing was, you know, I'll I'll unify, I'll unify the country. Um, Or as he, I think, tweeted, we'll unify like never before and we will win, 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 exclamation mark, something like that. They all talk like that, of course, but their real business is indeed division. And if the institutional preconditions for sharpening divisions have changed and are playing in their favor, I think it does help them greatly.
3: I just want to pressure a bit on the American case, because I'm not so convinced that Trump and what's happening in America fits into the same phenomenon as what we can see in Europe. And I think particularly Orban is perhaps the best example of the point of comparison, because he seems to me to be someone who has established a fairly competent governing style, whatever one thinks of the underlying political nature of it in the way in which you've described, and it's been in relative economic terms, quite successful for Hungary. Certainly Hungary's in a better position economically than when he first came to power, or came to power this time, I should say, in 2010. But I somewhat struggle to see that Trump's established any kind of coherent governing style. And particularly, I would say, look at an instant that you've already pointed to, the way in which, as soon as he's in power, he's got no idea who to appoint to many of these positions, not least the economic positions, the Treasury positions. And he ends up appointing these people from Wall Street, the very people, Goldman Sachs in particular, have been railing against in in the um, campaign. And on foreign policy, particularly in relation to Russia, I'd say he's effectively been disarmed by Congress and other elements of the foreign policy establishment in terms of the, the foreign policy that he wished to pursue. I mean, going back to some conversation that I think David and I had in the summer, it seems to be very difficult to see how Trump can ever stabilise this, I wouldn't even call it a governing style, but this approach. There seems to be too much chaos in it. Whilst we can see that he makes certain moves in terms of the cultural war language and I think the whole issue about the National Anthem and the NFL was pretty much deliberately done for that purpose as other things were slipping away from him. These seem to me to be pretty much tactical improvisations on his part in relation to a political scene that he just actually can't stabilise, let alone control.
1: I agree that these cases should not just be equated or homogenised. Clearly, there's a difference between a very savvy player like Orban, who has a long-term strategy, even announced a strategy before he came to power again in 2000, 2010, who had a kind of institutional game plan, who's surrounded by very clever lawyers who are very good at fooling the EU and various outside players in terms of what they're really doing, and someone like Trump, who on one level of stumbled into this whole thing, and to this day, has no real movement behind him but also maybe for better or for worse isn't surrounded by the kind of people that for instance George W Bush surrounded himself with where he could basically say look I want to do something might be dodgy in terms of the Constitution write me a memo that's going to help me be on the safe side at this point as far as I know Trump doesn't have these sorts of people but it might be changing I think we always have to at least reckon with the possibility that these people are also learning on the job that they figure out what is working, what is not working, and that, after all, he still has parts of the media behind him. I mean, it's maybe hard for us to, to fathom, but at least online, something like Breitbart now does seem to be central to the conversation, and what we still think of, for better or for worse, as more moderate voices, Wall Street journal online and so on, have become completely marginal. In that sense... I agree that it's not comparable in terms of a coherent strategy but it doesn't mean that nothing is happening, it doesn't mean that nothing could happen as these people figure out further moves down the line but in the grand scheme of things of course what also is always important to look at is simply the you know, the starting point. I mean if like Orban you have a two third majority in Parliament and you can change the constitution at will yeah. in your favor, that's obviously a different situation than somebody who remains highly constrained in all kinds of ways, who does try the language. Again, I think it is not irrelevant if somebody tweets about so called judges, because, you know, one doesn't do that normally in the US context. But I agree that this doesn't mean that it's gonna get through or that it's ever going to amount to a comprehensive institutional rebuilding of the country. Because you could say one of the ironies here
0: maybe is one of the paradoxes of American political life is the achievement so far, as you described it, is filling up the judicial bench in various ways with sympathetic judges. And yet the rhetoric is anti the judges, because they're not elected. This isn't just about Trump. I mean, it's a feature of American politics. So much of it is played out through the judiciary including its raw democratic populism, despite the fact that you're going to be in a bind if you've said that judges have no authority and the judges are the people you're relying on for your legacy. Something's got to give.
1: But also not everything that happens has to kind of translate into recognizable institutional change. So the Environmental Protection Agency is still there. But if the head of that agency does nothing but meet with coal lobbyists day and night, which is more or less the case, you can ask on another level: Well, is it actually still yeah, there? Well, the head or of it not, doesn't believe know. it should be there. So I mean, at the basic level is effectively, you know, when Steve Bannon talked about the deconstruction of the administrative state, I mean, many people had no idea what he meant. But this might sort of be the idea that yes, you know, you don't do anything that looks too dramatic in a certain way. And that doesn't require, you know, huge majorities behind you to change the constitution. And yet de facto it's profound change. It has real effects on the ground already. And again, a certain constituency is gonna be very happy with this. And yes, they also see incompetence and chaos, but they're getting exactly what they want.
0: Talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. There's never
2: been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. go back to the title of this uh, London Review of Books essay, which I think was Capitalism in One Family. So I'm interested in the clientelistic aspect of populism as a, as a governance strategy. And we've spoken a bit about that, and it's quite important, I think, in some of the things that you say, that there is this clientelism. And reading your description of it, it there was a, an image that came into my mind, which was this wonderful scene from one of the films by Paolo Sorrentino, Il Divo which is a film about the, the life of, of this post-war Italian Christian Democrat politician, Andriotti. And there's a great scene where Andriotti is, I think, in the Prime Minister's residence, I think the kind of the palace. And there's a long line of people waiting outside. And he's with, I think, his wife, Olivia. And the two of them are just simply giving presents to these people who are queuing outside his his door. It seemed to capture, for me, the the centrality of clientelism in a certain sort of era in Italian politics, which people sort of, I think, is reasonably well known. But what struck me was the openness of it, the brazen nature of it. And I was wondering whether, I mean, one of the features of clientelism from a populist perspective is that it's not hidden, but it's kind of open in that way. Is there some sort of shift there? Is there a new kind of flaunting of clientelistic ties that we see, see today?
1: So not all people who engage in mass clientelism are necessarily populists. I think the difference is indeed that populists do something which otherwise is sort of slightly shameful or people try to hide very openly and with what in their mind is actually a perfectly correct moral justification. Because remember that for them, from the get-go, not all citizens are really the people. Only some people are the real people. So if only they get benefits or bureaucratic favors, or in your example, presents, or in the case of a Jörg Haider in Corinthia, 100 euro bills on the street, that's actually how it should be. That's not something to be ashamed of. We're doing the right thing, so to speak. Maybe, but again, this is a hypothesis. I can't prove this to you empirically, but maybe this at least partially explains something which otherwise I think is very, very puzzling namely that of course a lot of these characters when they're in opposition are the great crusaders against corruption then they get into power and it turns out in some cases they're ten times more corrupt than the so-called establishment and these are not subjective criticisms in the case of Haider for instance there's still a huge lawsuits what's going on in Austria because basically what happened under his under his governorship of Corinthia was absolutely horrendous in terms of corruption and yet strangely it doesn't really seem to hurt a lot of these characters also if you think about Erdogan for instance this stuff is on tape. This is you know, not something that is, is, is a conspiracy theory. So maybe the explanation is partly that from the point of view of supporters, of course, this isn't corruption. This is actually doing the right thing for the real people. And then if they get a little bit too on the side, you know, that's in a sense well-deserved. So again, I'm not saying this is a proven, a proven theory. Again, it might have more to do with a lack of publicity. So we always assume everybody knows what we know. But of course, people don't necessarily know these things, which I don't mean in a professorial, you know, I'm I'm above people and no special things. I'm simply talking about basic information that some of us take for granted and that in these highly segmented public spheres, where local newspapers are contr- controlled by the government, all state TV is controlled and so on, simply the word will not necessarily get out. So this might be a more straightforward, maybe more banal explanation, but there might also be something specifically about mass clientelism and how it's perceived. But how does the family then fit in? Because...
0: Yared and Ivanka, how are they the people? They don't look like the people to me.
1: They look like his spoilt privileged kids. I'm afraid to say that not everything can or has to fit into my theory of populism. So no, I'm not, not everything that, makes so doesn't all have to that, add up. I mean, I I'm not saying something? that they all have. I mean, of course, there are examples of, you know, look, you know, he's handing over the national front to his daughter, you know. So there are sometimes interesting things going on where one might also see some, no pun intended, family resemblances among these movements and, and actors, but I wouldn't say that this is sort of necessarily part of, the, part of the package. You see, I
3: think on this is where I think Trump fits into a kind of older political phenomenon, which you can kind of go back to, you know, like the Roman Republicancy, in which you have a crisis of the elite. The elite is not, not able to deal with a set of practical, economic and political predicaments. You have effectively factional warfare within the elite, in this case, moderated by democratic civil politics. But then an outsider faction within the elite and I think that Trump is just an outsider personality within the oligarchic class to some extent in the United States mobilises discontent amongst the non-elite but actually there's never been any intention that the non-elite is going to be the basis on which Trump was going to govern. I don't think he actually thought that there was any real possibility that he was going to win. But then when he gets into power, to the extent that he's capable of governing within the constraints of the institutional system, he governs like any other member of the political class is going to govern because that's actually what the underlying political phenomenon is about.
1: Yes, I would agree with the fact that, at least in some of these cases, it's not really you know the opposition to an elite, it's an alternative elite. And in Poland, for instance, people talk very openly about Poland A and Poland B. And this, I mean, without psychologizing too much, I think sometimes can also be explained by the fact that here is basically an alternative elite that is somewhat resentful. So let's say, again, in the case of Hungary, here was a certain so-called liberal elite that also partly came out of the dissident movement. And here were these basically country boys, you know, were very clever and all got to study law, but they always felt, okay, we always sort of pushed back. They look down on us. And here's finally the chance to kind of really show them, show them um, how it can be done differently. I don't want to make too much of these sort of deep philosophical analyses. Like, you know, if you're from Queens, it's different than from you. Uh, if you're from Manhattan and so on. But I think there's partly some of that going on as well. But also in other cases like Berlusconi, to whom Trump, I think, rightly has often been compared, It sort of goes back to the old joke in American politics that, you know, basically conflict of interest is the reason you go into politics, right? And um, in in that sense, that might not be the main agenda, but it also helps certain people to kind of realise, okay, now we're in charge and we can do certain things that we didn't think was possible with with the other guys.
3: I mean, I think in this respect, the interesting one is actually Modi because he's the one person who actually came from the social class that he's trying to mobilise the discontent in a caste-based system. And that makes him, I think, different than the others, who are much more like sort of outsider insiders.
1: The only thing I would say is that, the, at least in my view, the real promise of the populist leader is not, I am like you. I think that the core promise is, I am the only one who's going to implement the real people's authentic will. And in that sense, as has often been pointed out, it can actually help you if you have a lot of money. I mean, as Trump explicitly said, I cannot be corrupted because I have all this money already, and she has to go to Goldman Sachs and and become rich rich in Baltics. So that's why I'm the one who's actually going to do what I say I will I will do.
2: The question about the programmatic content of, of populist governance so is it's quite interesting because it's it's maybe the point where the differences are most tangible. I mean there seem to be some movements, individuals, parties even that are traditionally labeled populist and have a pretty strong program. There seem to be other instances where the populist moment and the populist figure is much more acting in, a, in an ad hoc way. In some ways, you could say that the attempt to concentrate power is an expression of an inability to really command much authority generally. So in some ways, the, sort of the case of Trump might be a point of contrast to other figures. I mean, Modi's a good example of politicians who do have a program. I've always thought that one of the, the striking features of some of the right-wing populist parties was that they may be to some extent populist but they were defined above all to be honest by their program by their political offer a couple of years ago I was looking at the different um, manifestos or programs of French political parties and there was no doubt that the National Front's 150 page you know document seemed more solid more full of things that they wanted to do more
0: full of things being given to the people
2: well Some of it was, yes, kind of offers, but a lot of it was just laying out a set of reasonably coherent ideas that had some sort of coherence. uh, Whereas you could see that the other parties were sort of the result of cobbling together things and some of the traditions were being sort of put to one side, etc. Would you say that that's a... Is there some sort of unity in the programmatic aspect of populism and what populists actually do with power?
1: So if you find anything worthwhile in my approach, I think then there isn't actually anything like a populist policy or program. Populism is then strictly about claiming this moral monopoly of representing the real people, and policies are a different issue. So if you tell me what you think about the euro crisis or immigration or refugee policy, I would not be in a position to say you are or you aren't a populist. Having said that, of course certain policies have an affinity with certain tales about who the real people are. So it's not an accident that white-wing populists are going to say certain things about immigration, refugees, and so on. And I think maybe the distinction is worth bearing in mind because we can have outcomes such as, for instance, in the Netherlands this year, where everybody is, you know, unbelievably relieved and pats themselves on the back saying, oh, thank God, you know, the populists didn't win. But... Given this distinction, we may well have a situation where, yes, Gerd Wilders didn't win, whatever that may have meant in practice anyway, but our supposedly responsible, mainstream, even pro-European, Liberal Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, if you recall, puts ads in all Dutch newspapers where he says, behave normally or leave the country. This is after his Liberal Party in the 80s had the slogan, be yourself, but never mind. You can see what I'm trying to say, that basically, yes, you can have an official loss for the populist, and yet a lot of the policies that have an affinity with the right-wing populist position are doing very well. In fact, you might even say that the statement itself in this case is quasi-populist from my point of view, because with all due respect, it's not the job of the Dutch prime minister to define cultural normality in the Netherlands. Yes, everybody has to obey the law. We can have a discussion about how we think of ourselves as a nation and so on. But this kind of imperative is obviously deeply, deeply liberal. So in that sense, I think it might be helpful sometimes to say that we can have a much more complicated scene as opposed to, you know, populism up, populism down, which, alas, has sort of become the frame now for every single European, maybe every single election around the globe. And we don't ask any further questions about, you know, what really happened.
0: And so can I ask a further question, which is where this might be heading? So at the end of your your article in the LRB, you say at best populists will waste years for their countries, as Berlusconi did in Italy. And then you give sort of what this might mean in the US, and I think it chimes with what you've just been saying. I think it also chimes with what's happened. Crony capitalism, attempts to undermine checks and balances, government as a kind of reality TV show, you say, with plenty of bread and circuses. But if we take the Berlusconi comparison, not least given he's on the comeback trail, so it never quite ends, how much damage, that's the best case scenario, how much damage did the best case scenario do to Italian democracy? Those wasted years... What's the legacy of that?
2: I mean, it depends how you understand Berlusconi. So if you think that the way in which he brought in corruption, the acceptability of what were manifestly his own ties to the wider Italian economy and establishment and particularly the the media aspect, if you think that he somehow normalised it and that that's you know, has a detrimental effect on Italian democracy, then you would say the record is very bad. In other respects, I think, you know, Berlusconi was a sort of a political personality who coined, a, you know, a certain way of doing politics that was, you know, very much his own. Others copied him, you know, in some ways, he sort of pioneered this very personalistic relationship to, to voters, he would, you know, sign a contract with Italian voters on television, saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. That kind of politics has become very much what we understand politics to be today. Now, did he do some of the things that we've been talking about that Trump's been doing? Is there this sort of deep seated authoritarian legacy of Silvio Berlusconi? I don't think so. Did he have a a set of policies that were identifiable? I would say more or less, yes. Did he enact them? To some extent, a lot of time, he was he spent a lot of time fighting with judges and trying to defend himself, but he had a kind of sort of entrepreneurial vision for the Italian economy and society that didn't really work, but was nevertheless there. So there was quite a lot there. I think that he wouldn't be an instance, I would say, of a non-programmatic figure or somebody who has no program.
0: And it wasn't a catastrophe in the end. It, it wasn't was, a it catastrophe. It was bad, but...
3: Well, I would say two more things. First of all is is that it's bad because corruption is bad. and Corruption is bad for democratic politics. But if you look at what went on in Italy before Berlusconi came on the scene, the old Christian democratic well, as you said, the re- regime, it's stacked full of corruption. So it's more personalised and more overt for an individual in the case of Berlusconi. But he, he does not bring corruption into Italian democratic politics. And I would say the most significant damage that was done as a consequence of Berlusconi's premiership in Italy was actually the end of it, the way in which he was removed from power by the European Central Bank. That is at least as damaging to Italian politics going forward, including effectively giving rise to the birth of the Five Star Movement, and the real possibility there will now be, you know, like an anti-Euro government in Italy at some point in the next five years, is a consequence of the fact that Berlusconi was deemed as somebody who was unacceptable to... Both a technocratic body, the European Central Bank, essentially to Angela Merkel as well, and is removed from power.
0: So in a way the technocratic backlash is often, I don't know if that will be the case in the United States, I doubt it, but it's sometimes part
1: of this story. I think it's a fateful dynamic, alas, that very often then the reaction to populism is more technocracy, usually with the argument that look who people bring to power in the end look even more irrational than we would have thought. Which of course it makes it again easier for populists to come back and say, what do you mean democracy without choices? Where are the people in all this? And ultimately we see a rivalry of two accounts that basically say no alternative. Or that are both anti-pluralist, if you like. In one case, only one rational solution to every policy problem. If you disagree, you reveal yourself to be irrational, basically. And on the other side, people who say there's only one authentic popular will. If you disagree, you reveal yourself as a kind of traitor to the people. And everything that we usually think of, maybe naively, as, of as democracy, debate, exchange of arguments, and so on, party competition on the basis of different but legitimate programs sort of disappears between these, between these two things. And, I also worry a little bit in the U.S. context about this very strong reaction to basically say whatever now this government is saying is a lie and we have the truth. So you open any website or a newspaper, it'll immediately have a pop-up saying, if you care about the truth, subscribe now. And by the way, it's 60% off today. So the truth is 60% cheaper than, uh, than on other days. And I don't think it's, in general, it's not a good thing to end up with a politics where one side says we and only we have the truth and the other side, well, whatever they then and say and i think this is also a distinct danger in france right now that basically macron's approach is like a second coming of the third way where he says look here's this reasonable middle which is why people from the left and the right can join me in my movement and we end up with these two crazy extremes which are basically you know can't be discussed at all and if that fails, it also is likely to make populists stronger again.
0: And can I finish with just one further thought about what might be different about the American case? And this does touch on something that's in this week's issue of the London Review of Books. There's a really interesting and chilling essay by Adam Schatz about the power of the president in relation to nuclear weapons. And you know, this is populism plus nuclear capability, which is also true for Modi, but I think not of any of the other people that we've been talking about but in the American case, it also comes with a particular constitutional setup, which is this is the quintessence of the president's power. And it's a big part of how people both react and are alarmed by this phenomenon at the moment. Does that give it for you, you know, in a different flavor relative to these other cases we've talked about? You know, Berlusconi, whatever he can do, he's not going to trigger the Third World War, I don't think. I mean, anyone can, but you know, it's not so obvious how you get there. Does populism plus nuclear weapons give you a different kind of free song?
1: Well, with all due respect to Italy, there is indeed a difference between a country which has nuclear weapons, which has, again, in the background now, many constitutional scholars who are willing to back up, you know, what has often been called the unbound executives. So again, this sort of the way for this was partly paved in terms of the White House having many more prerogatives and powers, and not least. There's a difference whether the U.S. says, okay, at least for four years we're not going to care about climate change, and Italy, Hungary, etc., saying we're not going to care about these issues. And I can imagine, let's say, a scenario where in in 50 years historians look back and say, yes, it's a little terrible what happened inside the country, but the really big deal was that you lost these precious years to really do something about, you know, a global threat to humanity, and obviously at at a certain point we won't be able to, to make up for that anymore. And the further thought, which is if the dynamic, so there's
0: not a program, but there's a both a rhetorical style, but also a governing style, or maybe even philosophy, which is about identifying enemies, it's about divisions and so on. And a lot of it is projected outwards, it's projected at foreigners, it's projected at other regimes, it's projected at particular personalities, who are the enemy, Kim Jong-un, or whoever. There must be a risk, the projecting outwards of it, is profoundly destabilizing for global politics, including
1: non-populist regimes. Well, if you ever have two hours to waste in your life, look at some of the so-called films of Stephen Bannon. I don't want to make too much of him as, you know, the, the, the great mastermind in the White House. He's obviously not met there anymore. But it is genuinely frightening. Because you realize that some of it is sort of -of run-of-the-mill American conservative stuff, and here's people like New Gingrich show up, so it's not obvious that, oh, here's the alt-right, and here's the normal right. No, it's all very mixed. But some of it very clearly suggests that basically the United States, as it is now, actually contrary to what populists would say, is pretty decadent. And who's to blame in the 60s, of course? But what we need is a profound moral regeneration. And how is that going to happen? Very clearly through a war. I mean, that's very clearly the message of some of these so-called documentaries. So that, I think, is a different situation than some of the other characters we talked about, who I think have no commitment to these sorts of ideological notions.
2: What's really interesting is, um, on the foreign policy side, I think what people perhaps are most afraid of, and maybe Bannon's the sort of... um, is an interesting case maybe he's an exception that proves this rule or not is the unpredictability of it it's that things may happen in some ways by accident or through escalation rather than really through fully formed intent so you know the context for the emergence of trump or the rise of populism generally is a the disintegration of a more managed kind of democracy what we tend to call party democracy it's a disintegrative dynamic that doesn't lead to sort of fully formed strategies to be implemented using the tools and the force of the state it leads to at the level of the state that kind of disintegration and then responses to it and trying to keep a hold on things in some way so you have a very unpredictable international scene because the the old familiar terrain of national interests and sort of national strategies don't work so well because there isn't that correspondence to some sort of clear sense of what a country is and where it wants to go and what people in that country might, might want to achieve through their foreign policy.
3: I think that's absolutely right about Steve Bannon's agenda. I think that he is a man who is very much influenced by ideas that say some kind of moral regeneration is necessary and that requires war. And I think it's kind of tied to those arguments. It's a different kind of argument, but I think Bannon uses this one himself too, about we're being stuck in a cycle of history where each time he gets to this point that war is what happens. I'm less convinced that Trump is particularly interested in any of this stuff. I think that Trump's, if you go back to the things he said in his worldview, such as we could describe it as going back to the 80s is there's any kind of public record of it, it's about America's economic position in the world. You know, he thinks of the presidency in this respect, if he could do it on his terms, which he can't, of doing business. And I think that the North Korea situation is not a great mix, his personality and temperament, with the situation in North Korea. But the North Korea situation has not arisen because Donald Trump is in the presidency. It's a, It's got longer origins than that. And some kind of crisis would have occurred, whether Hillary Clinton was president or whether Trump was president. But I think that it's very difficult to see how Trump himself is really interested in the war side of it. But at the same time, he is now in a situation where he's not in control of his own presidency. And that in itself, I think, is a a worrying thing for the president of the world superpower to be in.
1: I guess we're all condemned now to be Trumpologists of sorts and to kind of keep trying to identify patterns. But two things I I might perhaps add is that one is that yes, If you just think about this person as somebody who comes out of basically New York real estate development, so that I think suggests in many cases a certain attitude towards the law, which is basically how do we get around these things, but more specifically also in the case of Trump, and I think historians have sort of started to identify with this, this very strong commitment to kind of zero-sum politics, that basically there always have to be winners and losers. You know, everything else is a, is a sham, is a charade. They only tell us that everybody benefits from this deal or that deal. That doesn't mean he has to go to war, but it's a different outlook on the international scene than sort of traditional liberal American foreign foreign policy. If you'd like
0: to read Jan's work for the LRB, we will post it on Twitter. Just follow us at tppodcast underscore go to lrb.co.uk. It's all there and it's well worth reading. Next week, we're talking to David Miliband about refugees, about immigration, and about the future of social democracy in David Miliband's new book. He cites Jan's work on populism. So I might start by asking him about that. Do join us next time. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. I'm also joined by Helen Thompson and Chris Bickerton, both of whom have written about and have got things to say about populism too.
3: Just a minute, I haven't written anything about populism, so don't say that.
0: <laughs> Surely you haven't. haven't. You have. Haven't. You don't, you're don't. just not aware of it. No, no, no I I everyone has. Yeah.
1: Yes. And if you haven't, in the next five but you minutes you have. You've world, written so about so the Brexit vote. And if that's not on.
3: populism, that's my whole point. Yeah,
1: you're absolutely correct. It doesn't matter anymore. That <laughs> battle is lost, you know. <laughs> Do you really want me to do that again? Not nice. But I think
2: you're going to have to anyway because you
0: interrupted you on Facebook. Okay, I got